when the child grew up. She brought him to Pharaoh's daughter, and she took him as her son. She named him Moses, because she said, I drew him out of the water. Please pray with me. Dear God in heaven, we ask you, as we do each week, to be here in this place with us now. And we trust that you have kept your promise and are here in our midst. May my words now be your words and all of our thoughts your thoughts. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Please be seated. Even from the very beginning, the parallels between Moses and Jesus are overwhelming. In our reading this morning, which deals with Moses' birth and the circumstances surrounding it, we see a great genocide ordered by Pharaoh. And even though the Egyptians have enslaved and are oppressing the Israelites, God's chosen people are becoming numerous. So numerous, in fact, that Pharaoh is getting worried. So he sends out an edict that the Hebrew midwives are to kill all of their own people's male children. And when they disobey, Pharaoh widens the edict to all of his people. Hebrew boys are to be killed. In Matthew chapter 2, when Jesus is born and a star appears in the sky, we read that the king in that time and place was similarly troubled. Herod was somebody who was very protective of his power. Having killed multiple sons, his favorite wife, one of his mothers-in-law, several uncles and cousins, in order to shield himself and his throne from any kind of attack, either military or political. At one point, he even invited the currently serving high priest down to Jericho, and during a suspiciously rough game of something like ancient water polo, drowned him. So when he hears that there's a potential new king on the scene, it's totally in character that he decides to take care of it, to cut this problem off at the source. And when his first order the one to the wise men, if you'll remember, when his first order fails, just like Pharaoh's first order failed, Herod orders every male child under two years old in the whole region murdered. This horrific act is called the slaughter of the innocents, and the church remembers it each year. So in Luke, The infant Jesus escapes his slaughter, this genocide, by doing just what the infant Moses does in Exodus. He goes to Pharaoh. An angel of the Lord appeared to Joseph in a dream and said, Rise, take the child and his mother and flee to Egypt and remain there until I tell you. For Herod is about to search for the child to destroy him. And he rose and took the child and his mother by night and departed to Egypt and remained there until the death of Herod. This was to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet out of Egypt. I called my son. Now, Moses is already in Egypt, of course, but he still escapes his genocide by going to Pharaoh. In fact, he goes directly to Pharaoh's house 
His mother puts him in a basket and sends him down the river into the waiting arms and the counterintuitive safety of Pharaoh's daughter. Now, the parallels between Moses and Jesus don't end there, not by a long shot. And we're going to come back here. In fact, this is where the good news is. We'll see that Moses points us directly to Jesus and his saving work for us. But before we come back, I want to note just for a moment that we find ourselves today in a cultural moment not too dissimilar to the one into which Moses was born. The book of Exodus starts with this phrase. Now a new king arose over Egypt who did not know Joseph. Okay, technically that's verse 8. But the first seven verses just sort of summarize the lives of Joseph and his brothers and their fruitful time in Egypt. You'll recall, of course, that the sons of Jacob, the children of Israel, are in Egypt because 11 of them sold the 12th, the most beloved one, Joseph, into slavery there. But Joseph rose to prominence, was much blessed by God, and ended up having the ear of Pharaoh. And when a famine eventually came to the surrounding land, Egypt, because of Joseph's leadership, was prepared. And so that is where Israel's children settled. Genesis ends in peace, prosperity. I imagine those first few years were pretty great. Joseph was highly placed in the government, which must have led to comfort and favor for his family. But it wouldn't last. And it's actually quite abrupt in biblical terms. Here's Exodus chapter 1, verses 6 through 8. Then Joseph died, and all his brothers and all that generation. But the people of Israel were fruitful and increased greatly. They multiplied and grew exceedingly strong so that the land was filled with them. Now there arose a new king. Over Egypt, who did not know Joseph. A new king who doesn't know Joseph. But that's not really the crux of the matter, is it? It's not really ultimately about Joseph. Joseph, while important, is not really the key figure here. What matters is that a new king arises over Egypt who does not know Joseph's God. Now, I'm not suggesting that. Sestrosis I, probably the pharaoh who gave Joseph such a high station and so much authority, I'm not suggesting that he was a God-fearing man. But it's certainly true that he knew about Joseph's God. Joseph unfailingly gave the credit for his dreams to the God of his father and of Isaac and Abraham. And when Pharaoh was pleased by Joseph, he asked his advisors, can we find a man like this in whom is the spirit of God? Then Pharaoh said to Joseph, since God has shown you all this, there is none so discerning and wise as you are. But that all changes. By the time we get to the Pharaoh during the time of Moses, we not only have Pharaoh thinking of himself as a God, which would have been totally par for the course. But we also have him dismissing 
all the miraculous signs that Moses does in Yahweh's name with the tricks of his own court magicians. He didn't know Joseph or Joseph's God. Now, our politicians today don't claim to be gods, at least not out loud. But we certainly find ourselves living in a time during which the king does not know Joseph, don't we? Fundamental Christian doctrine is being classified as hateful, being legally undermined, and sometimes even criminalized. Christians are losing jobs and being taken to court over their convictions. Now, to be clear, we are not afflicted, abused, and enslaved like these Israelites. We're not even particularly in America oppressed. Indeed, those Christians who get fired for their beliefs have so far tended to win their court cases. So don't hear me drawing an explicit parallel between the plight of Christians in America today to that of God's people freed by Moses from slavery in Egypt. Just know that following the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob is not going to get you elevated as it did for Joseph to the upper echelons of our government. Our kings, irrespective of political party, do not know Joseph or his God. We, like those ancient Jews, need a rescuer. So is there good news for us? For a long time, it didn't seem like there was any good news for the Israelites, did it? The Egyptians, we read, became ruthless in imposing tasks on the Israelites and made their lives bitter with hard service in mortar and brick and in every kind of field labor. They were ruthless in all the tasks they imposed on them. Now, this story highlights the bad news of worldly saviors, even the ones who actually accomplish a rescue, they eventually get forgotten. Joseph was there to save his family and his people when they needed it. But here in Exodus 1, he's been forgotten. Moses, as we know, will grow up to lead his people out of slavery out of Egypt, establishing them in a new land that God will give them. But that won't last either. After generations of idolatry and sin, new kings who rose up and who, in a sense, forgot about Moses, the Babylonians and the Assyrians sweep in and take God's people away into captivity again. Moses' saving work is temporary, just like Joseph's. Even during the Babylonian captivity, another temporary savior arises. Daniel, the king in this case, Darius, who like Pharaoh considers himself a god, makes a law that all worship must come only to him. Daniel, a faithful servant of the Lord, continues to pray to Yahweh, the God of Abraham and Isaac and Jacob. Darius, though, doesn't know that God and throws Daniel to the lions. Daniel, as we know, is miraculously spared and his faithfulness elicits an amazing proclamation from the king. I make a decree, Darius wrote 
to his whole kingdom that in all my royal dominion, people are to tremble and fear before the God of Daniel. For he is the living God, enduring forever. His kingdom shall never be destroyed and his dominion shall be to the end. He delivers and rescues. He works signs and wonders in heaven and on earth. He who has saved Daniel from the power of the lions. The Jews are again rescued, free to worship in peace. But eventually, Darius dies. So does Daniel. And the cycle repeats itself. And so once again, in the year of our Lord, 2023, we find ourselves in a time, a time that has existed again and again since Adam and Eve took a bite of that fruit We find ourselves in a time where the king does not know Joseph. Neither does he know Moses or Daniel. But those saviors were never meant to be permanent. They were meant to point to Jesus. Jesus is our ultimate savior. A savior for all time. In the same way that the temple sacrificial system was meant in its impermanence to point to the one sacrifice, Jesus's body and blood broken and shed on the cross that could take away sins forever. Moses's rescue of his people from Israel is meant to point to the rescue that we can all have for all eternity in Christ Jesus. The birth stories of Moses and Jesus are not remotely the only things that connect them. After leading the people of Israel out of Egypt through a kind of baptism in the Red Sea, Moses is tested in the desert. Moses doesn't pass this test of faith and does not get to enter the promised land with the people. Jesus, after his baptism, in the Jordan by John, is also tested in the desert. But where Moses and his people fell short, Jesus proves faithful, opening the true promised land of eternal life to everyone who would put their faith in him. When Moses' people grumble in the desert, in Numbers chapter 21, revealing their sin and faithlessness, a plague of snakes is sent to torment them. When they call out to God for salvation, the Lord tells Moses to put a bronze serpent on a pole and to hold it up and that anyone who looks upon it will live. In John chapter 3, during his conversation with the Pharisee Nicodemus, who as a Pharisee and a ruler of the Jews would have known this story well, Jesus puts himself in the place of that bronze serpent. As Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, he says, so must the Son of Man be lifted up, that whoever believes in him may have eternal life. Finally, at least for our purposes this morning, Moses ascended the mountain to receive the law. God's holiness shone so brightly through it The law was so good and so holy that the people could not look upon Moses' face when he'd been in the tent with the tablets. 
Jesus also ascended a mountain, Golgotha, the place of the skull. Having fulfilled the law, he ascended the mountain to be the gospel for us. His holy life and righteousness, far from causing us to turn away from him, is actually given to us in exchange for our death and sin. For the law was given through Moses, writes John in the introduction to his gospel. Grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. Moses points us to Jesus. The good news for us, for you and for me today, is that even though we, like those Israelites in Egypt, live under a king who does not know Joseph or his God, we have a Savior. And our Savior, thank the Lord, is better even than Moses. He is Jesus Christ, the righteous, Son of the living God. He is God himself, the Holy Son, second person of the Trinity, made man for you. And for me, and oh, what a savior he is. Moses freed his people for a time. Jesus rescues you for eternity. Moses helped them shake off the shackles of slavery in Egypt. Jesus breaks your chains of bondage to sin and death. Moses led his people into a new land. Jesus wins for you a new and eternal life. Today, despite the kings of this world, you can be free. In Christ, and on account of his finished work, you can be made new. Believe right now that by his blood it is accomplished, that you are rescued, and that you are forever redeemed. Rehearse your belief with us in the creed. Confess your sins and hear absolution in Jesus' name. Feast with us at his table. Rejoice that your Savior has finished his saving work and that you are forever set free. Amen.